Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, there's been a lot of talk about uh, housing lately, from the Fed to David Rubenstein's interview with John Paulson. I want to bring in somebody who runs a closed and fund and invest primarily in residential home mortgages. Catherine Hawkins joins us, a portfolio manager and senior vice president, Vertical Capital Income Fund. So, Catherine, um, what kind of my main you know, question is what kind of risk are you seeing here for the return that you're getting or what kind of return are you seeing for the risk that you're taking? Sure. I, I mean, I think it really depends, <clears throat> you know, on what asset classes in the mortgage industry you're uh, investing in. Um, Single-family rentals right now are pretty hot. Um, they're producing the, the highest returns, really, um, and, and that's with investors chasing yield and kind of this low-rate environment. Um, you're still looking at a first lien um, on a residential mortgage. Um, so as far as you know, the risk profile, um, you're first in line. We're, we're in the business of buying the whole loan, so we're not investing in any pools or tranches. Um, we own the servicing rights as well. So um, I, I, that's where we are focusing on really right now is single-family that, rentals. That makes a lot of sense, and I could see um, single-family rentals being a great investment. When you step back and look at the whole market right now, how does it strike you? Because it seems like everyone wants to buy a house. Prices are going as high as they can, and people are just paying as much as they can borrow. Um, well, I don't know that I, I necessarily agree with all of that. We have, um, you know, home ownership is actually down since 2009, um, and we've got, we're seeing a lot more renters, um, especially in the younger generations, the millennial generation. Um, and, and you're seeing that, too, in a with COVID um, and a surge of, People wanting more space, not wanting to be in the multifamily housing. So you're seeing kind of people moving out of that live, work, play area and looking for um, single-family rental homes. Catherine, talk to us about the, the credit quality uh, of the market that, that you play in. What are you seeing now in terms of credit quality? Yeah, I think that's the big difference um, between kind of the surge right now and, and back, you know, subprime eras is really you're seeing – 700 and above FICOs, um, you know, the credit uh, guidelines and lending practices are, are tighter um, than they have been in a while. Um, so we're really, we're looking at 700 to 750 FICOs um, and generally like a 60% LTV on the property. What about the Fed's involvement here, the um, asset purchases that they've been making? Is it hurting your ability to provide more returns? It's really not. So again, we're we're buying a whole loan. Um, we have a whole loan portfolio. The tapering, um, you know, that I think we're not going to see any significant um, change in rates due to tapering, um, you know, anytime soon. I think rates will stay the same. 
Um, you know, and that's, it's always going to drive, you know, to kind of get creative on structure and leverage um, to, to find some yield and return. So I'm starting to hear, I think maybe on the radio, some of the return of zero down mortgages. Um, that kind of gets my radar up, having lived through uh, the financial yeah. crisis. Yeah. Should we be concerned Can about I get one for two and a half million? Yeah. Um, It it concerns me, too. Um, Luckily, it's not a big uh, program, um, and very few groups are offering it. And then it is different than subprime, uh, you know, than we saw kind of the NENA, um, you know, and subprime programs that were out there. The credit um, is a lot higher. I think it's a 760 uh, minimum credit limit to these. And it is basically an an 80-20, so you're really financing your down payment on those. Um, one of the biggest differences that I take a little bit of comfort in is that these are fixed-rate loans. Um, they do not have a balloon payment, uh, and so there's not going to be any kind of, or a prepayment penalty for that matter. And so there's not going to be a really a big payment shock to any of the borrowers. Um, I, I think it really weeds out some of the borrowers that are trying to get in in the beginning. What do you think about the way the fund has traded on the NYSE? I mean, um, it's obviously. You, you don't expect to see much volatility in this kind of fund, and yet even with the pandemic, you saw a big drop. People took advantage of it quickly, and it snapped almost back, but it still it's got yet to come back to the 2019 levels. That's right. We did see a pretty big drop um, in the stock price with um, the onset of COVID, which I think was kind of in line with all markets uh, really in general. Um, and, you know, the the volatility in our fund is that we're just, it's not a big uh, market share, right? So we've got a few inbe- um, institutional investors that trade in and trade out. It's really more of a long-term uh, play. What's the concern in your market, Catherine? 30 seconds left here. Uh, if rates will, in fact, start to, to rise here? You know, for us, we're buy and hold. So uh, we'd redeploy any capital that, you know, we get back in remits. Um, we're starting to see a slowdown in refis, but it's too early really to tell if that was um, just kind of a come down of the summer season um, and if that will really continue. Uh, but really for us, slowdown in refis, um, you know, we, we just redeploy capital, you know, into current rate environment. All right, Catherine, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Catherine Hawkins, Portfolio Manager and Senior Vice President of Vertical Capital Income Fund, uh, a close-end fund that invests primarily in residential whole mortgage loans and whole loans secured by deeds of trust. Uh, the investment objective there is to seek income. And for a lot of investors looking at a you know 1.3% 10-year yield, there is uh, a need for income. There is a need for yield in this market. And clearly, the mortgage market is one place of interest. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Andres Pearson joins us right now, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Nuveen. They have $1.2 trillion of assets firm-wide and are based out of gorgeous Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, 
And Anders, this is, you know, obviously it's a personal issue for me, COVID and, and what's happening in terms of travel restrictions, but it's got to affect um, the companies that you cover as well as, uh, you know, the, 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 the entire global economy, when you don't allow Americans to fly into um, Europe, it becomes a problem on so many levels. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, certainly it's it's uh, it's a key kind of area that we we paying attention to. Um, certainly, the trends have been concerning, and and the reopening kind of type uh, trend that we've been seeing, not just here in the U.S. but also globally, is certainly could or could become impacted. And, and as you said, if, if Europe starts becoming more strict on um, you know, uh, U.S. visitors or, or visitors in general, that certainly can have um, you know, both, both an economic impact and, a, and a, a behavioral impact as well. But I, I would say, I mean, when we take a quick step back, here of late, the economic activity, at least in the U.S., has not been quite as much affected on this latest wave on the on the Delta side as, as we've seen in the past. And the high frequency data has, has sort of been showing quite minimal impact of consumer uh, consumer behavior so far. That could certainly change, and certainly we're keeping an eye on return to school and how that's going, and, and even if there are delays to returning to the office. But uh, at this point so far that again the high frequency data seems to be holding up quite well certainly we're keeping an eye on, on case counts and hospitalizations around around the u.s and around the world where at least now we're seeing some deceleration in, in the latest numbers not to say that we're out of the woods far from it but um we're certainly monitoring the, this risk but at this point COVID has not had a, a, a whole lot of impact on the fixed income side of things, uh, at least. So worth monitoring, obviously, on top of mind for everybody, including the companies we invest in. Um, but so far, it's been fairly minimal impact, we would say. On just what was your takeaway from Jackson Hole last week? It's that, you know, the, the signaling factor seems to be pretty good from the Fed. What was your takeaway? Sure. Yeah, I would say we would we would probably call it a bit of a non-event. Honestly, it's, uh, it felt like it was in line with what the market was expecting and kind of hoping for. Perhaps a little disappointment of not getting more clarity around the, the actual tapering timing. But we actually feel like Chairman Powell handled the events very well. He gave a bit of more assurance that tapering is coming, and and he sort of uh, clarified and, and reinforced that. That there is a, ta- a thought process of, of that likely that could start before the end of the year, but at the same time he left himself with a lot of optionality, be it looking at some of this uh, additional economic data coming up. Obviously, jobs numbers on Friday would be quite key, and even you know a better read into what we just mentioned around COVID and the Delta variant potential impact. So, all in all, we we, we felt like. He handled well, uh, didn't really spook the markets one way or another. Um, I think it was kind of interesting to see that you had a lot of key speakers from, from the Fed come out in the past week or so with sort of a mix of views and discussion points. But in the end, I think this reinforced our view that you really, you really mostly almost exclusively need to listen to, to Powell 
along yeah. with maybe Clarendale Williams and Brainard. And uh, those are the key people that are really setting the tone here. So interesting to get the takeaways from other Fed speakers, but ultimately Powell and his core team is, is what truly matters here. Are, the, are, are all the Hawks non-voters? It's a bit of a mix, uh, to be fair. And then, as you guys know, it kinda, it's a moving target as well as those are, are moving around. But, but the key players uh, in our mind is, again, those kind of four, Powell, Clarida, Williams, and Brainard. Um, and that's not to say that everybody obviously has some influence and, and have views that can, that can frame things up. But at this point, um, we cannot view this weekend's uh, message from Powell in particular, particularly that it was sort of a, a dovish tapering message, meaning reinforced here what I said, that it's on top of mind to have kind of a before end of the year time frame. But at the same time, also reinforced that the tapering timing and the interest rate hiking timing are in completely separate timetables. So there had been some market speculation, again, partly, I think, because some of the other Fed speakers uh, being fairly aggressive in some of their sound bites. But, so there had been some speculation that maybe we can start reading into timing of the first hike around when tapering would wrap up. But again, I think Powell came out and said it pretty clearly. Um, that 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 shouldn't be the case. He's separating those two uh, timetables uh, completely. So again, we kind of view it as a, a dovish tapering ma- message at this point, and again, gives them a lot of flexibility here, and could easily pause a bit before rate hikes uh, start uh, right. and, and kind of wrapping up the tapering. All right, Anders, thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, Anders Persson, uh, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Nuveen, uh, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. As we watch uh, markets hit a new time, high, a new all-time high, at least the S&P 500, um, after what we saw in Jackson Hole, um, we should talk about what exactly that was. Priya Misra joins us, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Priya, great having you on. Great talking to you again. Um, what did you think that was? Was that a dovish taper, as it was sort of referred to on the day? Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I think we heard not a new message from Chair Power, but certainly a message that they are inching, that the Fed is inching towards taper, but that they don't feel urgency, either on the inflation front or on the labor market front, to have to accelerate the pace. We're also seeing very clear signs from the Fed that they're trying to disentangle um, tapering from hiking. I think they're trying to prevent a taper tantrum. They've done a fantastic job so far. We're three months away potentially from a taper, at least in our forecast, tapering happens in December. And yet the bond market is stable. Equities continue to go up. So I think what the Fed is trying to say is the economy is strong. The Fed is starting to take the punch bowl away, but they're doing it in such a gradual pace that it doesn't threaten the recovery. I think that's the message we got on Friday. And now I would say it's much more important now what happens to the economy and the economic outlook rather than the Fed reaction function. I think the Fed has tried hard to clarify that through Jackson Hole and through other Fed messages. All right, Priya. So if we are to look at the economy, presumably labor is a big, big part of that. So, and we have the, obviously the jobs report coming up on Friday. How do you think the Fed is looking uh, at this labor market? And what do you think they're kind of, what clues do you think they're looking for? Sure. So I think they'd want to see the continued uh, number of, uh, you know, non-farm payroll numbers. So 
jobs uh, created in the economy. I think they'd want to see that continuing to grow. We do expect to see that sign, but our economists do have a slowing in the pace, a pretty significant slowing. We've got 400,000 penciled in for Friday. So that is much weaker than close to a million that we saw last month. Some of it is a seasonal issue. Some of it is high-frequency data we're noticing is is showing a deceleration in, in the job momentum. But I think the Fed would want to see continued job growth plus people returning to the labor force. I think that's been a big open question you know, is there a structural shift in the labor market? Or in our view, this is more a function of the fact that we have the extended unemployment benefits or there's just lingering COVID fears or the fact that schools won't reopen. I don't think you get that sense from this report because this is still August report. Really, I would say September and October payroll uh, report, so released a month later, would be more important on that you know, structural component of the labor market. I think that will give the Fed a sense of true labor market slack As long as there is slack in the system, I think they want to be extremely accommodative. If there are signs that people are not re-entering the labor force, that they've left the labor force for good, you know, retirements or people just, there's a skills mismatch, I think then the Fed may have to accelerate that pace of exit because that will mean wage inflation and sustainable price inflation will be on, you know, uh, will be sooner than they expect. But our thought is that people do re-enter the labor force. So we are looking for a weaker number this Friday, and I think that can make the market a little bit nervous here if the recovery is derailing a little bit. But we expect, you know, uh, over the next couple of months, uh, numbers to remain strong, and that will allow the Fed to exit gradually. But I think that's really the critical one. Well, it's the end of summer. I mean, we, uh, you mentioned the high-frequency data. We, we had a great story overnight by Steve Matthews and Jill Shaw just putting together a ton of charts from the data. And the one that caught my eye was um, airline travel. It's just rolled over at the end of August. But it's you know to be expected because you did hopefully some kind of vacation June, July, um, you know, unless you're Amy Morris, who hasn't gone on vacation since May. Um, what about the beginning of school? Does that does back to school you think push that data back up? Does back to school free more moms and dads to get out there and look for a job and, and obviously get one right away? Does back to school change the picture? Yeah, I think particularly on the labor market uh, front in terms of labor force participation, we do think back to school will help because it will free up a lot of people to come back and look for jobs. The Joel data is suggesting the job openings are there. So, you know, employers have the job requirements out there. The openings are there. We just haven't found the people willing to take it. Now, the big question is, is there a skills mismatch? The job openings out there versus the people that are reentering the labor force. Is there a skills mismatch, which is, I think, more concerning for the Fed if that does emerge? But I think there's enough jobs looking at the Joel data across the spectrum that if people reenter the labor force as schools reopen, and I think COVID does is, is a bit of a concern. If uh, we continue to see COVID cases rising, that might delay some people reentering the labor force. But if, uh, we do expect over the next couple of months people re-entering, these jobs getting filled, and that's a sign that there is underlying labor market slack beyond just what the unemployment rate shows. Priya, uh, 30 seconds. Um, I'm looking at the 10-year here, you know, 1.3%. It just feels like we're range-bound here. Is that kind of how we're going to play out the rest of the year, do you think? I think in the near term, yes, I think we're in a 125 to 150 type range. We are looking for higher rates by year end because by then we think we'll have the evidence that people are returning to the, to the labor market, that Delta maybe delayed the recovery but doesn't derail it. 
that the Fed starts to exit, we get more fiscal. So by year end, we think we may be able to break out of this range. But in the next few months, while we still have questions about the economy and the impact of Delta, and the Fed is being patient, we think we stay fairly range-bound on, on the tenure. All right, Priya, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Uh, as always, Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Again, a 10-year trading today, about 1.30%. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Earlier, uh, we heard a discussion, some tape between John Paulson and uh, Mr. Rubenstein uh, in a discussion about Mr. Paulson's view of the markets here, including crypto. And I want to get Shanali Basic's uh, view on that. Shanali is the Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Shanali, I know you, you saw the interview, you saw the comments from John Paulson. What's your takeaway there? Well, a few things. I covered Paulson very, very closely when he was working with Carl Icahn as an activist investor against AIG. Okay. It's like since 2008, everybody was waiting for John Paulson's next big short, and we never really saw it. But this is a very rare interview. He doesn't do much public speaking at all. Uh, I've tried to doorstop <laughs> him personally at ECNY conferences. And right. so it is a rare kind of view into his world. One of my favorite things he told David Rubenstein, though, is that uh, he didn't really love managing money for other people. Remember, now he yeah, runs his own money. It. It's billions of dollars. But no, I, th I totally agree. I thought um, it was super fascinating, especially for those of us who – you know, lived through and covered the financial crisis or invested uh, through it for our listeners. Um, so fascinating to hear from John Paulson. I did think that if you're a crypto investor, you probably you there's, rolled your eyes a little bit. You couldn't you couldn't care any less <laughs> what he thinks about uh, Bitcoin, right? And he also hasn't made any big bets. Um, other than gold and Steinway that I know of. Is that wrong, Shanali, since since the, the big short? Well, remember, I had said I covered the AIG investment, and so that was certainly a big deal when that was happening. But to your point, no, not like not like what he had done during 2008. Nothing, nothing like that. And so, you know, John Paulson, who is he to a new generation? That, that's a great question to me because, and what can you learn from what he's done? I think the reason I'm so interested in what he said about investing is that he said he didn't really like the business of business. And so can you make more money just by yourself day trading crypto and not working at a big investment fund? Or is investing the business of it still a good business? Well, I think that's a great takeaway because first of all, no one can ever uh, reduce the enormity of what Paulson did. I mean, I remember when the big short came out, I expected it to be about Paulson. Um, you know, and it, it turned out to be about some other players making similar bets. But I think even more fascinating was the way John Paulson went about making his bet. The people that he enlisted, they were kind of uh, lone wolves or people who were, you know, maybe very smart and wouldn't necessarily need to be 
courting clients or going on um, conference calls or helping other people deal with tax issues. I mean, this was this is about making a mm-hmm. big bet yourself and for your group, right? And not really about remember um, when he was starting out in the hedge fund world, hedge funds were not what they were today, right? It was a nascent industry, which is why what he said reminds me so much of crypto. Guys, there's no day that went back back through the last two years almost now, the last 18 months, where I wasn't looking for the new John Paulson, where I wasn't saying who was making money off of this crisis that we've been living through now. Many different players, some of the same, right? There were a lot of distressed names, Apollo, Oak Tree, uh, even Scott Minard at Guggenheim that made big money last year just by betting on bonds at their lowest, right? <laughs> right. By deploying hundreds of millions. But, but there has not been what John Paulson tells David Rubenstein, an asymmetrical trade. Where can you be? Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, you know, and, and it was really what he's saying, really. What can you take that is long-lasting investing advice? He said something that people have told David now a few times, don't invest in things you don't know about, right? Know about what you're investing in. People say that about crypto too. If you're going to dive into Solano, know what it is. But also looking for asymmetrical trades, how, how rare that is to find something where you wouldn't lose as much money on the downside. Yeah, it's interesting. When you hear people of the generation of John Paulson talk about crypto the way they do it. In, in he's many not levels. that old, guys. I want to remind <laughs> you, he's not really very old. He's only 65, I think. In the context of crypto, that feels to me sure. For, it feels sure. to me yes, that right. a lot of those investors may not necessarily get it, if you will, and maybe not necessarily want to put in the time to develop a call on it. Um, that's kind of a theme I think I hear from some of these folks. True. As you know, I was driving the Pacific Coast Highway all yep. of last week listening to DeFi podcasts. Oh, of geek, yes, geek. I'm a total nerd <laughs> listening to the parlance of the new generation of finance. I just want to know about the PCH. How was that? That's Beautiful. like a lifelong dream of mine that I've never accomplished. I highly, best, Yep. I travel once a month and I'm telling you that was the best <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> wow. And she got spent some time in lovely Carmel, California. I did. I did. Yep. Listening to DeFi podcasts. Did you, well, I have to know. <laughs> what, I mean, I imagine doing that trip in like a um, convertible 1965 Mustang. What were you driving? A Ford Fusion rented. <laughs> <laughs> so you were able to get a rent a car? Yes, we were able. To, it was hard. I would yes. recommend doing it way in advance. And honestly, uh, it was very empty. San Francisco was pretty empty. Yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah, by the end of it. But um, so we're not here cool. to talk about San Francisco, no. Well, no, Whatever but sometimes we sometimes we diverge a little bit. And, <laughs> it is August. Uh, you know, it's very cool that, I mean, I agree that the Paulson interview is fascinating. I was psyched to watch it. And there were a couple of really interesting threads to pull from it. And it's great to hear our Wall Street reporters take. But I also want to hear her take on the Pacific Coast Highway <laughs> because that's just awesome. Greg Jarrett apparently did it in an MGA Coupe, a 57 MGA Coupe, which is an awesome car to do that trip in. I'll do it better next time for you. Let's. Well, you can do it with Greg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.